Chapter 11 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 11 Ten Days at Ponta Delgada. There is something romantic about an island, any island. Islands have figured prominently in tales of adventure since the beginning of time. The idea appeals to the imagination. If the island happens to be hundreds of miles from anywhere, and if, besides, it happens to be a strange volcanic place with ragged cliffs, mysterious valleys, and peaks rising in fantastic shapes to the very clouds, the romantic picture is complete. Such are the Azores. This little archipelago far out in the Atlantic, a link, you might say, between the old world and the new, rears its ragged shapes from the ocean floor two and a half miles below, to a height, in the case of the island of Pico, of over 7,000 feet above the sea. For centuries these islands have attracted venturesome mariners. From the ancient coins that have been dug up from time to time, it is supposed that they were first discovered by the Carthaginians, but whether or not those hardy seafarers actually ventured this far, the fact remains that they were known to the geographers of Europe long before America was dreamed of. Mentioned first by an Arabian writer in the 12th century, as a group of nine islands lying far out beyond the Canaries, they remained the western outpost of the world until Columbus and the 16th century navigators pushed on across the western ocean. They were a natural rendezvous for the early Spanish and English expeditions to the New World, and it was off the islands of Flores that the famous fight occurred between the British ship Revenge, under the command of Sir Richard Grenville, and a Spanish fleet of 53 vessels. Skipping lightly over the intervening centuries, it was at Ponta Delgada, the metropolis of the islands, that the NC-4 dropped in out of the sky on her historic transatlantic flight, and it was here that the typhoon came to anchor on the night of Saturday, October 9th. And there you have the history of the islands from soup to, well, let us say, nuts. When we dropped the hook off the clock tower, after our run across from Santa Maria, we imagined that we were in for serious complications, for we had understood that Ponte Delgada was under quarantine for the bubonic plague, and that no vessels were allowed to put in there. And so it was with a feeling of guilt, as a perfectly sober man might feel at a Lloyd's Harbor dinner, that we responded to the hail of the customs officers and the harbor doctor the following morning. But these gentlemen seemed perfectly satisfied with our papers, though a bit surprised, and welcomed us to the town, explaining that while there were a number of cases of the plague, no actual quarantine had been declared. We lay not far off a stone seawall which seemed to enclose a tiny basin where bumboats and little coasting vessels congregated. Beyond the basin, tinted stucco buildings, balconied and red-tiled like those of some Mediterranean port, rose picturesquely, and partially seen through a triple archway on the left stood the cathedral, whose lighted clock tower had guided us in the night before. On the other side of the harbor a dozen steamships were moored to huge buoys or lay along the breakwater, and at the farther end were crowded a heterogeneous assortment of fishing boats, little steam tugs, and sailing craft. The small fishing boats were much like those we had seen in Spain and at Santa Maria, double-enders with the characteristic latine rig, but the coasting vessels were a distinctly new type to us. It was easy to see that they were a development of the small boats, for they retained the pointed stern in the latine rig, 
but they were different in model. Sixty feet or so in length, they were fairly narrow, with parallel sides turning in rather abruptly, producing a bluff bow. The water lines at bow and stern were fuller, and there was less dead rise to the midship sections. All of the craft of this type that we saw were three-masted, with long bowsprits and huge lateen sails, the yards of which, when hoisted, extended far above the rather short masts. One of these vessels, probably the one that had beaten us to port the night before, was discharging her cargo at the quay, and, soon as the customs officials were through with us, we put the dink over the side and rowed across for a visit. The skipper, a prominent townsman from some place along the coast, showed us about his little packet with justifiable pride, but he seemed to be more interested in our ship, which was unlike anything he had ever seen. His crew, a dozen of his fellow townsmen, were at mess when we arrived, squatting about the deck, each man with his own individual chest of food. It seems that these coasting vessels are seldom away more than three or four days, and consequently are not equipped with a galley, each man bringing his own supply of grub and vinho prepared by his wife at home. After the skipper and most of the crew of the schooner had been shown over the typhoon, in every feature of which they showed a lively interest, we went ashore for a look at the town, which proved to be larger than it had appeared from the water. During the war, our government had maintained quite an establishment here, consisting of a battery and a flying station, but all that now remained, so far as we could see, was a solitary marine and his dilapidated fliver. There were numerous cafés, now closed, that bore names which suggested that they had sprung up to take advantage of the golden opportunity presented by the spendthrift Yankees, and these gave silent testimony that for a while, at least, Ponta Delgada had had its fling. Since the exit of the lucrative Americans, the town had settled back into a monotonous existence, depending for its support largely on the vessels that put in there on their way back and forth across the Atlantic. In the case of the American shipping board vessels, the income must be considerable, for there is seldom a time when there are not several of them in the harbor. We found that eight of these ships, besides several of other nationalities, had been driven into Ponta Delgada for repairs by the gale that we had weathered in comparative comfort. One concern, the only one with facilities for making such repairs, has every reason to be grateful to heaven and a tolerant American public for the existence of the shipping board. They are certainly making hay while the sun shines, and the sun shows no indication of setting. The town of Ponta Delgada is composed largely of two-story, balconied stucco houses, closely packed along narrow, cobbled streets, with here and there an open space with a cathedral or public building to break the monotony. One street is pretty much like another, and, after we had done a few of them, we returned to the ship tired out. Our legs had not yet become accustomed to the ways of the land, and at first we attributed our fatigue solely to our lack of training, but we never really became rested while we were in the Azores, and the explanation is the enervating climate. It is not only warm, but extremely humid, a condition caused, I imagine, by the clouds which seem to cling continuously to the mountain tops. And then, too, there were the pineapples. It was the height of the pineapple season, and if there is one thing that looks better than a can of peaches to a salt-encrusted mariner, it's a fresh pineapple. We went in rather heavily for pineapples, and they produced a condition inside us that was decidedly detrimental to physical exertion. The whole crew lost its pep. 
My first official act on Monday morning was to call on the American consul, Major Drew Lennard, who received me cordially, in spite of the fact that I arrived an hour before the office opened, due to some confusion with the local time. Are you a captain? inquired the butler. Yes, in a small sort of way, I replied, and he disappeared to return shortly with the information that the consul would see me, in spite of my unconventional calling hour. Major Lennard, expecting another tale of woe about rotten boiler tubes or engines racked loose from their beds by the recent storm, seemed relieved at finding merely a social caller looking for human companionship. I explained that we had dropped in on him on our way across the pond and didn't want anything except, possibly, an introduction to someone with sporting instinct enough to cash a check. "'What kind of ship are you in?' he queried. "'A yacht,' I replied. "'The Typhoon.' How big is she? Forty-five feet. I mean, how long is she? What's her tonnage? She's forty-five feet long, thirty-six on the waterline, and her displacement is about fifteen tons. Crossing the Atlantic in a forty-five-foot cockle shell? Well, you are a nut, he said good-naturedly. Nutshell, then, if you like, I corrected. Typhoon is not a cockle shell. And then Lennard went on to tell me of his meeting with Peters and Griswold and the other Harvard chaps who had been there six weeks earlier in the Lloyd W. Barry on their way to Europe, and how they had hailed Peters to the consulate and started proceedings against him for cruel and inhuman treatment of his crew. The Barry was registered as a commercial vessel, she carried a cargo of flour for the fun of the thing, and Peters, inexperienced in the intricacies of admiralty law, sweating under Lennard's grueling cross-examination, had just about concluded that he was in for serious complications for violating something or other when cocktails were served and the whole crowd had dinner at the consulate. It was the first I had heard of the Barry since I had left Griswold in New York in June, with the tentative plan that we should meet at Cowes, and I was glad to hear that the little schooner was making good. I learned later that she reached Southampton some time after we had left the Solent, and after undergoing some repairs, had proceeded to the Mediterranean, still, I suspect, with her cargo of flour. Armed with a letter of introduction to an American by the name of W. W. Nichols, and with a promise that Major Lennard would visit the typhoon that afternoon, I left the consulate and went forth in search of funds. Mr. Nichols, who is in the shipping business, is one of those rare souls who seem to derive great pleasure from helping other folks out of difficulties. He not only cashed the check, but he offered to help us in obtaining such rare provisions as salt pork and salt beef, which are unobtainable in the Azores except from visiting ships. For my $100 check, I received a sheaf of paper money that would make the proverbial cow blue in the face. And right here I must say a word about the money of the islands, for it is the most remarkable that I have ever encountered. The unit of the currency is the 1,000 reis note, or milireis, which corresponds to the escudo, or milireis, of Portugal, but is not so valuable. The ratio is five island milireis to four escudos, or Portuguese milireis, and to distinguish between them, the island money is called weak money, and the money of the mother country, strong. And then there is the matter of the exchange. Before the war, the escudo was nearly on a par with the American dollar, but when we were there, it was worth about 16 cents, and consequently I received 750 milireis, or 750,000 reis, weak money, for my $100 check. 
To try to do any shopping without an experienced mathematician to help you is hopeless, unless you are content to put yourself at the mercy of the shopkeepers. You ask the price of an article and decide to take it without a struggle, which of course is wrong, and seeing you are a soft creature, the shopkeeper tells you that the price is in strong money, whereas yours is weak. By this time, becoming hopelessly confused, you call him something uncomplimentary in the sign language and hand him a Millerays note and trust to luck. Going on the supposition that humanity is about 50% honest, you take only about a 50-50 chance of getting shortchanged. There's really no other way, for you could never hope to count the strange paper things you receive, all sizes, colors, and denominations, in both weak and strong money. But then you get such a wad of it back and feel so disgustingly wealthy that you oughtn't to kick if he does hold out a little. Anyone who can juggle such money really deserves a commission for his skill. Who was I that I should kick anyhow? Don't we do the same thing over here? The only difference is that we don't like the term petty larceny, so we stick it on the bill under cover charge or service. In the afternoon, Major Lennard and George Cobb, the vice consul, came aboard the typhoon and seemed much impressed with her, especially with her living quarters. They considered our accommodations much more comfortable than those of the Barry, which, though a considerably larger boat, had her best space taken up with her cargo hold. And then they dragged me off to the consulate for dinner and a delightful evening, the first of several I was fortunate enough to spend at this hospitable place. In the morning we busied ourselves about the ship. Fox and I took care of the work on deck, while Charles cleaned up below and Jim started in seriously on the motor. We had not used the power since leaving the French coast, although Dorset had spent some time in a fruitless endeavor to remedy the trouble while we were at Ferrol. We were determined to get the motor going if possible, for with our longest legs still ahead of us, we could not risk slatting about in any more flat calms if we were to be sure of reaching New York before Thanksgiving. Already we had wasted too much time whistling for a wind, and every hour's delay increased our chances of encountering bad weather. This time we were successful, and before long the motor was performing faultlessly. As to fuel, we still had the greater part of the oil with which we started. In the evening, when I returned to the ship after another visit ashore, I found her close to the rocks off the seawall, moored stern to and slapping with her broad transom the seas that were being kicked up by a rising wind from the southeast. She had been lying to the sixty-pound anchor, and it seemed that her one-inch manila line had chafed through on the ragged bottom and that she had fetched up on the rocks, but the boys had acted quickly, placing the big hook out to windward with the tender and hauling her off with the windlass before any damage had been done. They had pulled her off stern too, and, as she seemed to ride comfortably, had left her in this position, a thing we had occasion to regret, for it blew a living gale during the night, and the pounding in the short seas was terrific. Of course we should have anchored farther up the harbor originally, but it was then too late to do anything. The shoal, rocky bottom was so close to leeward that I didn't dare to attempt to lead the line forward and let her swing around, for fear that she might strike with her deep heel, and there was so little line out that to work her ahead with the windlass might result in breaking out the hook. And so we endured the discomfort throughout the night. The next day we got her around bow to the wind without difficulty, and thus encouraged I decided to try to beat out of our predicament under sail, 
a thing that we should not have attempted in such close quarters without the mizzen, which, of course, was out of commission due to the broken mast. Raising the mainsail, we worked her up to the hook with the windlass, sailed over it, broke it out without losing headway, raised the jib, and got away on the port tack. We came about nicely the first time, but missed stays on the second tack, dropped off and tried it again, only to miss a second time. With the mizzen to help us about, the maneuver would have been simple enough. We were out of the harbor now, but we were dropping steadily down toward the rocks, and, not knowing the depth of the water, we were forced to anchor again. One of the little steam tugs, seeing our predicament, was hovering about us, and, suppressing our pride, we threw him a line and were towed to a safe berth farther up the harbor. We had not been here long when an officer appeared on the stern of the Independent Bridge, one of the crippled American ships, and semaphored over requesting that I come aboard to discuss repairs, which I did straight away. The officer proved to be W.J. Huber, the first mate. He grasped the difficulty at a glance and agreed immediately with the suggestion to run Typhoon alongside the Independent Bridge and lift out the broken stick with a cargo boom, a much simpler solution than taking her to the ship repair people, who were already crowded with work. Warping Typhoon alongside and lifting out the mizzen was the work of but a few minutes, and the ship's carpenter, a Dane by the name of Anderson, hereinafter referred to as Chips, got busy immediately on the repairs. The mast was cracked at the point where it passed through the deck, and the first idea was to shrink a long bronze collar around the bad spot, but after this was made it was spoiled in attempting to drive it home while hot, and the idea was abandoned. Since the mizzen is stepped in a bronze socket in the cockpit floor, there was a length of only about two feet below the brake, and, as there was plenty of room between the throat halyard block and the gaff jaws, we decided to cut two feet off the butt end of the stick. Then new shoulder cleats had to be made for the masthead, and Chips made a good job of them, mortising them deeper into the mast and riveting them right through the stick. The wire shrouds, of course, had to be shortened and re-spliced, and this job was simplified by taking all the slack off one end of each pair and then changing the position of the eye for the mast and resizing it. Typhoon and her benefactor became fast friends. The independent bridge and the other cripples in the harbor were undergoing repairs of one kind or another, interminable repairs, and consequently the officers had plenty of time for social activities. Captain Wingate, second officer Radowski, third officer Bell, and Glazier, the chief engineer, took a fancy to the little ship, and when we were not aboard eating their bully meals, they were swapping yarns in our cabin. They re-rated our chronometer for us and supplied us with a light list and a couple of charts that seemed to be missing from our stock. With the repairs completed, the problem of supplies confronted us, and this proved a problem indeed. There happened to be a food shortage in the islands, and an embargo had been placed on certain articles. Consequently, it was necessary to smuggle a number of things past the little soldiers on the quay. Dear reader, if you have ever attempted to smuggle a dozen eggs in an ordinary business suit, you will appreciate our difficulty. With an egg or two in every pocket of coat, vest, and trousers, you have a terribly aloof, touchy sort of feeling as you gingerly pick your way through the crowd at the landing and take your seat in the tender. You may get through the ordeal with but a small percentage of breakage, but the embarrassment caused by even a single broken egg is most disconcerting.
we took but a few dozen eggs. Through the good offices of Mr. Nichols, we were able to connect up with a hundred pounds of salt beef and a big sack of flour on the West View, another American cripple, whose skipper, Hillary Williams, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Navy, retired, instructed his steward to let us have it at cost. Even this had to be smuggled from the ship at night, for it seemed to be against the law to transfer supplies from one ship to another, and there were serious-minded little soldiers stationed on each vessel to enforce the law. Most everything else we needed was obtainable from the principal ship chandlery and supply store, and we laid in what I thought would be a sufficient supply for five or six weeks. It was about this time that we met Manson Dillaway, who was stopping at Mrs. Brown's pension, where lived our benefactor, Mr. Nichols, and my friend, David Vaughan, an American artist with whom I had spent a number of pleasant hours in discussing the things which to me are almost as vital as the sea and its ships. Dillaway, an ex-army flyer and an admiralty lawyer of Boston, had come to Ponta Delgada to see to the disposal of a schooner that had been dismasted and towed into that port. While not a sailor, he is nevertheless a mighty good sort, and as he was ready to leave for home, we suggested that he make the run with us on the typhoon, an offer which he accepted with alacrity. Most of the repair work on the disabled ships that always seem to crowd the harbor of Ponta Delgada is done by one big concern with a reputation for charging like sin. This company owns the tug that had towed us out of our awkward predicament, and also the water boat from which we had filled our tanks and breakers. One morning, a boat with a diver and full equipment came alongside the typhoon, with the information that the captain had been instructed by his company, the same one, to recover our light anchor which had been lost when the line parted several days before. With the assistance of Fox, who showed them about where it lay, they succeeded in finding the hook, and I began to feel that my bill with the concern in question was mounting to gigantic proportions. Stealing myself for the ordeal, I called at the office to settle the account. I feared that they might consider towing the typhoon out of her difficulty as a salvage job and charge accordingly, and I sort of felt that divers were an expensive luxury. Introducing myself, I explained that I had come to settle up, and then waited for the jolt. But it never came. These gentlemen explained that, since Typhoon was not engaged in trade, they could not think of charging for services which it had been a great pleasure to them to be able to perform. They admired the Typhoon, they said, and only wished that they might have been of greater help to her. Ashamed of my fears, I thanked them and left with a great and glowing confidence in the human race. As I was leaving the place with my guide, a barefoot youngster with a complimentary admiration for all Americans, we had an adventure. There was a great noise of shouting and clattering from up the street, or, rather, the shouting came from numerous excited gentlemen standing in doorways and other points of vantage, and the clattering from a runaway that had the street pretty much to itself. It was a warm day, and we needed a lift, my friend and I, and so, exercising as much care as I could, for the horse was a small, delicate-looking animal, I stopped it, vaulted into the little cart, got my companion aboard, and drove smartly back in the direction from which the thing had come, assuming a casual sort of expression, as though we always did that sort of thing in America when we wanted a ride. The effect on the doorways was delicious. Presently we came upon a crowd of breathless people led by a very red and very rotund person with a whip, 
who seemed on the point of apoplexy. Assuming that he was the bereft proprietor, we alighted smartly, turned his property over to him, and left him, gasping and surprised that we had not charged for salvaging the outfit. After going through the formality of paying our harbor dues, I called at the consulate for our health certificate, and to say goodbye to the Major and Mrs. Linard, whose hospitality will live in my memory along with that of Les Capucines and my friends of Cowes. After a dinner at a café with a name reminiscent of the American occupation, the U.S. Club, the entire crew of the Typhoon dropped in at our little rendezvous in the back room of the ship Chandler's, where seafaring men congregate to, as the scriptures say, look upon the wine when it is red, although I must say that their interest in the beverage was somewhat more than ocular. When it was learned that we were actually pulling out that evening, our friends, who had been improving the opportunity offered by an unlimited stock of local and imported beverages, started in to ransack the entire place for suitable gifts to bestow upon the crew. Glazier appeared triumphant with a box of Dutch cigars and a bottle of black and white, someone else discovered chocolate and cigarettes, and Captain Wingate, totally disregarding the importunities of numerous clerks and the proprietor, nearly precipitated a riot by mounting a stepladder and sweeping off the entire contents of a shelf of fancy canned goods, which he ordered delivered to the typhoon. Then all hands repaired to the independent bridge, where another dinner was served, and, after receiving a final tribute of medicines, a large saucepan and saltpeter for our pickle barrel from the steward, and taking aboard a couple of dozen pineapples which Dillaway had ordered, we were ready to cast off. So far as I know, the noisiest moment in the history of Ponta Delgada up to that time was when the American collier Orion beat off a German submarine while the local artillery officers were hunting for the key of their ammunition locker, or possibly it was when the armistice was signed. But these demonstrations could not have surpassed the uproar that broke loose as the little black ketch slipped her moorings and sailed out the harbor in the gathering dusk. Every ship in the place, regardless of nationality, broke out her siren and blew salute after salute, which we returned on our foghorn and with many dips of the ensign. It was a tribute from big ships that plow the seven seas to a tiny craft that played their game for fun, a tribute that blurred the eyes of her crew and brought strange lumps into their throats as she rounded the breakwater, met the heave of the open sea, and squared away out into the path of the moon. It was Thursday, October 19th, ten days after we had come to anchor at Ponta Delgada. End of chapter 11